Good morning. It's good to have you in our service today, and I trust that you've already been blessed. This is another one of those messages that I didn't plan to preach. Not because I planned to plan not to preach it when I planned what I would preach, but rather because it wasn't planned when I did plan what I would preach. <laughs> I mention that because I want you to begin to think, all right? But the amazing thing is that the text I planned to preach is the text I will be preaching nonetheless. But I'll be preaching it as it is, not as the message I had planned on preaching from the text. Now, if you understand what I've just said, <laughs> please let me know afterwards so I can... <laughs> you see, I had planned on preaching the first three verses of this text and then applying it to what I considered to be the current relevant issues to which I believe it speaks. Not directly, but speaks to nonetheless. That's the normal way most preachers preach. But that's where the unplanned plan for this morning's message began, when I got into the text itself. I realized that I just couldn't take these three verses out of their original unintended context and simply apply them to the situations outside of that context. Although they might well fit. As I went through the text, I understood in a new way that I just couldn't pluck them out of the context in which they were given. A message, a truth that I always teach my students is that we must teach and preach the text, not what we want to preach from the text. And so I believe that God intended these verses to be proclaimed, to be communicated and expounded or exposited as they were given in the text. In other words, the message that God is sending forth from this text is his word as he gave it. And he promised us that when his word is proclaimed and preached as it is, not what we say about it, not what we add to it, but as it is, that that word will not return to him void but it will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it forth. So you see, his purpose might be a little different from mine. And that truth hit me like a ton of bricks as I was going through the passage. The message then that he wants to accomplish today, I believe, is from this text. But it's contained not only in the first three verses, but it's contained in all of the verses. Now I could make up a great message from the three verses, but I don't believe that the message would be God's intended message to you or to me. It would be my message. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is an important truth in teaching, preaching, or applying the word of God. Okay, now that I have clearly elucidated what I just did, and again, constrained by the principle of discovering 
on communicating the divine author's intent of a passage of scripture. And that's my burden today, to communicate the message as intended by the author. I invite you then to turn with me to Psalm 11. And I'm excited and as I anticipate to discover what God might say to us in this passage of scripture, this fantastic passage of the word of God. And I invite you to stand as we read these words together. They will appear on the screen and I ask you to read it understanding that it is the word of God. It is God speaking directly to us through the scriptures. So please read along with me with that in mind. In the Lord, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready the arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heavens. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous of the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. That's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, here again, a power phrase of that passage from the message. And I do this again just so you could begin to get a hold of the message of this passage. Because sometimes in reading it in this fashion, we just read it. It is not as clear as it should be to us. So please listen as I read this paraphrase. I've already run for dear life straight to the arms of God. So why would I run away now when you say, run to the mountains? The evil bows are bent, the wicked arrows aimed to shoot under cover of darkness at every heart open to God. The bottoms dropped out of the country. Good people don't stand a chance. But God hasn't moved to the mountains. His holy address hasn't changed. He's in charge, as always. His eyes taking everything in. His eyelids unblinking, examining Adam's unruly brood inside and out, not missing a thing. He tests the good and the bad alike. If anyone cheats, God is outraged. Fail the tests and you're out. Out in a hail of fire stones, drinking from a canteen filled with hot desert wind. God's business is putting things right. He loves getting the lines straight, setting us straight. And once we're standing tall, we can look him straight in the eye. What do you do when what you're standing on is removed? 
That's the message of this text. Now, it's important to understand the setting, the background, the historical circumstance that has brought it about. Although the specific incident is uncertain, in fact, unknown, it is apparent that David's life is being threatened and his companions and friends are strongly encouraging him to run for his life. Most scholars agree that it is Saul who is threatening David's life. Everyone knows that Saul is after David. He threw a javelin, a spear at him and tried to kill him. David's friends are encouraging him to run for his life. The first phrase then in the first verse is David's settled response. In other words, after hearing everything that his friends have said, this is David's response. In the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. Or he's saying, I don't have to run anywhere because my refuge is with me. My refuge, my protector from my enemies and all harm is the Lord. I don't have to run anywhere because he's here with me. That's David's response. And so this opening phrase, in the Lord I take refuge, is like a the subject of a sentence. You know when you're in school, you write a composition, the first thing they tell you is give you a sentence, right? To describe. It's like a theme, a topic. So this is like a topic sentence. My refuge is the Lord. Now he's going to describe how he has come to that conclusion. You see, the entire psalm is David's response which is crystallized, summarized in the words, my refuge is in the Lord. The rest of the passage describes how and why David came to this conclusion. And this is what I believe that God wants us to walk through today. How David, a man after God's own heart, came to the conclusion when it seems that everything is against him, and he's encouraged to run away, he comes to the conclusion that he will not. Why? Because in the Lord I take refuge. Someone has said, and I quote, Psalm 11 is an antidote for gloomy headlines. Now, if there's any place that have gloomy headlines, it's Nassau, Bahamas. Just another murder last night. What is it, 50-something? 56? Rapes, violent acts against children, against women. Marriages are being broken down. Husbands are leaving wives, wives are leaving husbands. I just read a report in the States that there are more divorced in the church than it is among unbelievers. More, not equal, but more. Children have no respect for their parents. Manners have gone out. You walk down Bay Street or any street, people are cussing. Psalm 11 is the antidote for gloomy headlines. When the news is all bad, wars, violence, crime, corruption, and political unrest, David reminds us that we can rise above the circumstances of life by keeping our eyes on the Lord. 
This psalm is David's answer to the pessimistic counsel of despair and discouragement. End of quote. That's why I believe this psalm is so relevant to us. And we must see what God's message is in the psalm, not what we wanted to say. Because, boy, I could go to town with that third verse. If the foundations are removed, what shall the righteous do? I could speak a whole week on that and don't look at the Bible. And it'll sound good to you. But it wouldn't be a word of God. So we got to look at it in its context. So what a better time then than now for us to hear this message from God through David, the psalmist king. Headlines are gloomy. Everything seems to be coming apart. All the foundations seeming to be removed. But let's go through the passage then. Let's look at the advice from well-meaning friends. When I was going through this, I thought of Job's friends. Well-meaning. But at the end, you know what God said about all of their advice? All of it was wrong. Look at the end of the book. He says, everything they said was wrong. is not true. But they went to give advice. Now we have some advice from well-meaning friends. It's good to have friends, eh? Isn't that right? It's good to get advice from friends. But you better be sure that those friends are people who have good contact with God. And the advice they're giving you is sound biblical advice. Because sometimes the worst advice you can get is from your best friend. But you'll receive it. Why? Not because of the advice, but because of your friendship with them. So keep this in mind as we go through this. Here is the urgent plea. Flee as a bird to your mountain. That's the plea. And it's urgent. What are they saying? My paraphrase, David, run for the hills. Run for the hills. David, you are defenseless and as vulnerable as a little bird before your enemies. What happens when you go off the bird? They fly away. They're safe in the air. They're safe in the tree limbs. David, you are absolutely helpless before your enemies. Hightail it. Probably the thinking of Jerusalem because that was David's place of refuge. Jerusalem is on a hill. Run to the place that you'll find protection. Get away. Now, why were they giving David this kind of advice? Let's look at the reasons for their plea. Verse 2. The threat is real. He says, four. That gives a reason. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright and hard. That's referring to David. Upright in heart, the righteous man after God's own heart. Here's my paraphrase of that passage for us today. The criminals are ready to shoot the innocent at any time when they least expect it. That's a situation David found himself in. They could be anywhere hiding, behind a bush, in the dark. The bow, the gun is already ready to shoot. You could drive from work and go home and open your car door. Bang! And the gun is in your face. You could go into your bedroom and bang! The door opens and someone comes with a knife. They're all around you. And you cannot seem to be able to protect yourself because you, you don't know when or where they're coming from. Tell me that's not the situation we're in today ourselves. The wicked were out to destroy the righteous. 
the innocent. And so David's friends are telling him, your enemies are wicked and will stop at nothing to kill you. They are prepared right now to come in for the kill. They have you in their sights. They're going to do it suddenly and subtly. Even in the darkness of the night when you least expect it, you're not safe anywhere, David, at any time. David, your righteousness and integrity will not protect you. That's what they're saying. You may be a good and righteous man, but they're not. And your righteousness is not going to stand up against a gun, against a boat. That's what they're saying. David, the odds are against you, even though you are a righteous person. Look at verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, it's amazing the way some people interpret this passage. They, have, they can't do nothing. That's, one, that's what the same many people interpret this passage. What can they do? They can't do anything. But is that what this text is saying? This is the advice of people. Now, remember that. See, it's the context. This is the advice of friends of David who appraises him as being as a righteous man. And say, David, your enemies are out to get you. And he says, because everything around you is crumbling, even the government is against you. If the king is against you, if the law is against you, what can you do even though you're righteous? That's the idea. And so in context, the foundations refer to the law of the land, the order of society based on government's rule or based on the rule of the land. That's in context. And so David's friends, the faint-hearted, those who are afraid, those who don't know God or have a faith in God, they were saying that based on their observation, the nation has crumbled under Saul. Don't expect the ones who are supposed to protect you to protect you because those are the ones who are against you. That's the foundation. If you cannot look for protection from your protector, what can you do? You see, they were looking at everything earthly. David was looking to the heavens. They were saying, criminals now run the show, in our words today. They have all the weapons they need, and the law does not mean a thing to them. They viciously and violently ambush and kill decent law-abiding citizens. If that is true, and even the police and the law can't do anything, what in the world can you do because you're a Christian? That's the context. Now, don't you feel like that sometimes just help us? What can I do? That's why some people go into Abago now. Go into Spanish wealth. Are you serious? That's why some people coming from Abaco and Spanish wealth, they won't stay here overnight for nothing. That's the kind of a situation we find ourselves in. That's the kind of situation David found himself in. And so I paraphrase this verse like this. Law and order have vanished completely. Look around you, David. The foundations of society are crumbling. What in the world do you think you can do even though you are a righteous, law-abiding citizen, David? You can't do anything except run. 
And some Christians are doing that, running from Nassau to protect themselves and their families. These friends of David say, they're going to get you, David, regardless of who you are, no matter how many times you pray. You are in a hopeless, chaotic situation, David. All of the cherished, stable landmarks of the past are being demolished or are in the process of being demolished. So, David, run, man, run. We can do nothing to prevent the inevitable. Not be truthful. Isn't that how you feel about the society right now in the Bahamas? If most of you had the means, you'd go live somewhere in Switzerland or something like that. I can say Abaco, but people now are looking for other places to go because Abaco is getting just as bad as Nassau. It seems that all of the landmarks of our society that we cherish in the past are being torn down. Look at the children that you see around you, unruly, rude. Look at some of the ideas that are being formulated in the minds of young people. I heard on the radio the other day, three young ladies called in succession. They're in the teenagers, you could tell by the voice. They don't believe marriage is that important to have sexual relations. So it's better to shack up for a while. Shack up with somebody, get to know them before you get married, if you get married. Because after a year or so, you could make up your mind. If you don't feel good with this person, dump him, find somebody else and live with another year. Now, let me ask you something. Where are these young people getting these ideas from? Are they getting it in the Sunday school? Are they getting it from their parents? Where are they coming up with these ideas? Why is it that we have young people who are becoming the more violent people in our nation? They do it in the schools. Where are they learning this? Where is this pattern of violence coming from? I believe one of the major ones is in the home. Parents are not parenting anymore. Parents don't teach their children. Put me to the desk. Check small children are doing well in Sunday school or at school. You'll find that their parents are going over their work with them, teaching them memory verses or whatever. You check with it. You'll find that every kid who's not doing good, their parents are not parenting them. That's why I believe that's where this series is going to go, by the way. The foundations are being torn down. And one of them, I believe, is the foundation of the home and the foundation of marriage. Marriage does not have the kind of lofty perspective that God has with it anymore. People hardly go into marriage today with the idea it's for life. Mm -mm. It's just a, well, after a while, if it ain't working, boom, that's it. The home, the mom, the dad. The roles are not being played out according to the word of God anymore. It's the almighty dollar, as we say. It's fun. It's looking after me, number one. The foundations are being torn down. What would the righteous do? David's friends seem to assume that nothing can be done other than the runaway. That's why some people say they ain't coming to church no more. I come and says, hey, I ain't getting nothing out of church. Now, they don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to listen to the sermon. They don't want to go to Sunday school. They don't want to study, but they, I ain't getting nothing. My children, we can have more fun on the beach by watching a game together. What can the righteous do? 
David's friend had said, the only thing you can do, David, is run away like a little bird, like a little chim-chim. No strength. Can't stand up against anything. Run, David! What can the righteous do in a situation like this? Well, there's some options. First of all, you can do nothing. You can just stay there and do nothing. Complain, of course. Police ain't doing nothing. Government ain't doing nothing. What you doing? It amazes me how people complain about things that they could have to fix, but don't move a finger to fix it. And many Christians are like that. They'll complain about all these wicked people and how bad the government is. And you ask them, and ask you pray for them, like you're commanded to do in Scripture, and they can't tell you. You could sit there and do nothing, and you could feel because you're righteous, God's going to take care of you. That's the position David was in. Some just sit there and do nothing. But another option is you can run. Like your friends were admonishing David to do. Run. Go to Abaco. Go to Andres. Don't go to the United States. <laughs> Not if you can be running away from it. Because you're going to run into it. And don't talk about Canada. Say, well, well, the UK. Uh-huh. Why is that so? It's because the foundations are being destroyed. Foundation of godliness and righteousness, morality, being destroyed. But then you could do something else. You can lay the foundations again. You can lay the foundations again. That's what Nehemiah did. He went back to Jerusalem to build the walls. Let me read you a passage. Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah went back to lay the foundations again. And I believe that's what each generation has to do especially as believers, we have to keep on laying the foundations of the past that have been removed or destroyed. And I believe that's one of the things we're failing to do as Christians today. Listen to David, or rather Nehemiah. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this is the second one now, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. You want to talk about choirs, Eleanor, and praise bands here when you go to the book of Nehemiah. It's just amazing to see how God used music to uplift his people and to be a testimony for the nations around. The nations said they could hear the music and they were celebrating the victory of God. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. For his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Why? Because the foundation of the house of Lord was laid. A second time. You can rebuild the foundations that you say being destroyed. Now this is a challenge for us. Are we going to run and let the criminals and the wicked and the evil take over completely? Because we say that they're destroying the foundations. Or are we going to rebuild the foundations? And you start with your own home. Your relationship to your wife. Your husband. Your relationship to your children. To your mom. To your dad. And that's why. When we continue the series. That's where we begin again. Laying the foundations again. For a Christian home. 
We need to rebuild some of these foundations that are being destroyed. Perhaps we need to lay new ones. But we don't have to run. David didn't run. David didn't just stand there and did nothing. David went on to build a mighty kingdom. In spite of the opposition. So let's look at David's response and why he responded the way he did. David responded that the righteous can trust in the real source of secure government. And that's the Lord whose throne is exalted in the heavens. Notice what he says in verse 4. The Lord is still on the throne. And he's still in control. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. David had a true perspective on God. He was a holy God. He was a just God. He was a righteous God. He just doesn't let wicked people and wicked things go. Mm -mm. The Lord's throne is in the heavens. He's in control. He's still on the throne. Regardless of the chaos that seems to be around, David says there's still a holy God who is sovereignly ruling over this. And nothing can stop him from fulfilling his plans for his people. Nothing. His sovereignty is unmoved and unmovable. If his one foundation the wicked cannot destroy is the foundation of the sovereignty of God. No matter what kingdoms on earth may rise and fall, he remains the same all the time. He is in control all the time. That's what David's eyes are fixed upon. This God, who's holy, just, and sovereign. He goes on to say that this God is actively involved with the affairs of men. See, sometimes we think God is so far out there so transcendent he don't care for us he don't bother us now god is transcendent he's far above us way above us but the beautiful thing is he's also eminent he's with his people that's what david is saying here his eyes behold he's actively watching he's aware his eyes behold his eyelids test the sons of men that test means to examine, to evaluate, to put them through a series of examinations. Everything we see on earth has to do with God testing man. That's the idea. Listen to what he says now. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Did you see that? Not only the righteous, but the wicked. So don't get the idea that God is not looking at these wicked people. He is. In fact, he's more than looking at them. He's testing them. And this is what he says now. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. He starts now to make a determination. Some people like to say, God loves everyone just alike. Now that sounds good and pious, but it's not true. God loves his people more than he loves the wicked. The Bible is clear on that. The Bible is clear on that. He gives everyone an opportunity to become his people. He loves his people. They are the apple 
of his eye. Now, the fact is stated here. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. In other words, he's stressing the omniscience of God. God knows everything about us. He knows everything about you. You claim to be a righteous person. Well, God sees you when you're home. He sees you when you have your discussion, your relations with your wife, your husband. He sees you. He sees you in your work, when you're trying to make a deal to sell something. He sees you. He knows what you do. He knows whether you're honest. He sees you when you come back to the United States. <laughs> and come to customs. He sees you. In fact, he might be testing you. He sees the wicked in the same way. He explains it now. He evaluates and judges the actions of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord is righteous. That's why he loves righteousness. And he makes a promise now to the believer. If you remain steadfast in your righteousness, you will behold my face. That means that he will see the favor of God in his life and in the life to come, have fellowship with him. This is not only talking about the future. For those who are righteous and keep God in their sight and have faith in him, God says, you're going to have my favor. That's what it means to be face to face with God. He doesn't turn his back on you. He sees you face to face. But then look at the wicked. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of the cup. It gives the wicked a chance to turn. But if they don't, judgment faces them. I listened to a preacher the other day. and He was explaining why he wears a Rolex and drives a Mercedes. He says, because he can want all those drug pushers and pimps, that's what he called them, to have the best things in life. See, the Christian's going to have it too. So if they could drive in a Mercedes and have a Rolex, why can't the man of God have one? Isn't that great theology? But that's true. That's what they said. You see, they don't seem to know the scripture teachings. But that's only for a time. Psalm 37 tells us about that. Don't covet the wicked, the unrighteous, what they have. It's all going to be taken away and destroyed, but the righteous will stand when it need, when you need to stand before God. And so God is saying, don't get your eyes off him and only fix it on this world. If you only see and you see all the wickedness and it seems that crime does pay. And you know something it does. Crime pays for a while. It's a false payment. It's a temporary payment. Immorality is fun. But only for a moment. Only for a short time. Because if it is not repented of, you experience the judgment of God. Notice what it says. Verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. In other words, the upright will experience the favor of God now and ultimately stand in his presence. And so what God is telling us in this passage, and this is why I couldn't leave out verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, because this is the message. We don't need to be upset about the headlines if our eyes are fixed on him. And we see things the way he is seeing it. We do not need to get all upset over the headlines. We don't need to get upset over the waves of adverse circumstances that seems to be so against us 
all the time. Fix your eyes on God because he is still in control. That's the message. He is still in control. Trust him. Not the government. Not the institutions around you. But him. So the faint-hearted, those without faith, David's good friends, advises him to flee like a bird to the mountain. Run away. You'll be safe. But what did David do? David says, I'm going to flee, all right, but I'm going to flee to the Lord. That's where my protection is. That's where my God will protect me. And so he says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you therefore say to me, flee as a bird to the mountain? What is David saying? David says, man, you know who you're talking to. I'm not just a little Christian out there who professes to believe in Christ. And as one outwardly and all of that, but when things get tough, I run. No, 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 not me. I'm a man after God's heart. And even when I go through problems and difficulties and trials, even though it looks like all of the foundations around me are falling down, I ain't going to run. I'm going to draw upon the resources of my God to rebuild them. To restore them. So I paraphrase this passage. This last one like this. This is David's resolve. I will trust God. And do what the righteous is supposed to do. Strengthen the foundations that remain. And rebuild those that have been destroyed. I will not allow the unrighteous. To overthrow the righteous. That's David's stance. How do you then. Start to rebuild. Well. Start on your own home. Father, Dad, you're supposed to be the head of the home. Do you know what that means? That doesn't mean be a bully. That doesn't mean a slave driver. That doesn't mean look at your wife as a maid, a domestic. No. That means that you are going to love your wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificially giving himself for her. That means that you are going to be a servant for your wife. Wife. You say, oh, come on, I ain't gonna be submissive to him. You don't give me no money. You don't take Miami, go shopping. You don't do this, you don't do that. You gotta start rebuilding that foundation of being a wife and understand what submissiveness means, that it is a divine calling. Do you know that your submissiveness is a picture of the submissiveness of Christ to his Father and the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ? Submissiveness is the core, if you want, function of the triune God. And when a wife is submissive in that fashion, that is one of the most holy things that she could do because she's showing what God is like in the area of submissiveness. The same way when a husband demonstrates true headship, sacrificial, loving, caring, being a servant, you show what the Godhead is like. See, this is what I talk about, rebuilding the foundation of the home. What do you do with your children? What are you doing as a father to counteract all of this stuff that's going on in the media? Do you really teach your children about morality and manners? It amazes me how some professing Christians could allow their daughters to go out in the public the way many teenagers appear in public 
as far as their clothing is concerned. It just amazes me how parents could allow that to happen. And then when something happens to their beautiful daughter, they want to know, how in the world could this have happened? How could these young men be so aggressive sexually? Where are they getting it from? Thinking that every young lady is a target for conquest. Where are they getting it from? Fathers, what are you doing to counter up that in your home? Don't go blame the school or the Sunday school. I, had, I actually had a lady tell me. And her daughter's starting to get in trouble. But we should be preaching here about what people suppose and where and where they're supposed to go and everything else. I says, have you done it? Well, you know, they ain't gonna listen to me. They look into the preacher, to the teacher, to take care of the children. No way. You gotta start rebuilding the foundations of your home. Begin with yourself as a husband, as a father, as a child. That's what the righteous can do. So my challenge to you today is, as well as to me, what are you going to do? And all the foundation seems to be process of being torn down, already torn down. Are you going to just sit there and do nothing? Or are you going to run away somewhere? Or are you going to be like David, who trusts in your God? And understand that you are to be a righteous person in the midst of persecution and tribulation. And to rebuild, rebuild the foundations that are being destroyed. That's what you and I are supposed to do rather than flee to the mountains. So let's go out here today with the determination of David. In the Lord is my refuge. Father, thank you for your word. Use it to strengthen us in our faith. Use it to encourage us to be righteous in our everyday life as we draw upon the resources of a triune God to live in this wicked world in a way that demonstrates that your people, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Help us, Father, to rebuild the foundations that have been destroyed.